Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome a very dear friend, Tim Babineau, President and CEO of Lifespan, Rhode Island's largest healthcare system and Professor of Surgery at Brown University. Tim and I have published numerous papers together, often dealing with the complexities surrounding end-of-life care. Tim's a compassionate protector of his patient's well-being, and he's a source of great inspiration to me. Tim, thanks for being with us. Tom, really great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to make a slight departure from our regular format, and rather than just have a conversation about a lot of things, we're going to tackle one very specific and particularly challenging issue that's facing all of you, that being the shortage of healthcare manpower. And I have to tell you, my heart ached when I heard you say that you've never felt this way about our healthcare system in your career. Can you share some manifestations of that shortage and some of the impacts that it's had in terms of service to patients? Thanks for talking about what I quite frankly think is probably the most the most important topic in American healthcare right now. I was a general cancer surgeon for 20 years. I've been a healthcare administrator for 13 years. So I've been in this for 33 years. And at the risk of sounding dramatic, and I don't mean to, I've never quite experienced anything like we're experiencing now in terms of the healthcare crisis. And, and we use the word crisis deliberately. You don't want to scream fire in a crowded theater, but this really is a crisis. And and when I talk to my peers around the country, and I talk to them frequently, this is absolutely the number one challenge priority facing healthcare in this country right now. And it manifests itself in a couple of different ways. First and foremost, it has impacted the level of care that our professionals want to provide, and they're frustrated because of the lack of staffing that they know they're simply unable to meet the demands of the patients currently, number one. Number two, I round in our emergency room every Monday morning. I go down through the waiting room, and it's hard for me to put into words uh, what the waiting room in our emergency room looks like on a Monday morning. Monday mornings tend to be the busiest because people stay at home on the weekends, uh, and then they come into the ER Monday morning. And the frustration on our professional caregivers because, again, through no one's ill intent, through no one's um, deliberate actions, people are waiting eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours, 16 hours to be seen by a professional. And our professionals are frustrated. They're frustrated because that's not the quality of care they want to deliver. You know, Tom, it, it's one thing if you got to wait two or three hours because your flight's delayed because they can't find flight attendants or uh, you got to wait an extra 30 minutes uh, to get your meal delivered to the table because they don't have enough uh, waiters or waitresses. It's quite another thing if you need to wait two or three extra hours to get your emergency PCI or your emergency CAT scan uh, because of staffing. Now, we're not there yet, but we're getting very, very close to where the quality of the care that we are able to deliver is simply adversely affected by the staffing. It's nothing we've ever seen. And again, it's not unique to Lifespan. It's not unique to Rhode Island. It's ubiquitous across the country. I'm interested to hear you use the term crisis. You know me. One of the things that bothers me about our industry is we tend to overuse buzzwords. I think crisis is not an overused term right now, listening to you describe these situations. 
How close are we to almost battlefield triaging in the emergency departments in order to take care of the folks that just absolutely can't wait? And how different is that from what people have gotten used to in emergency medicine? We're very close. And I guess the context I would put this in, and I don't have a crystal ball, and you may have a better crystal ball than I do, but best I can tell, the phenomenon that we're living in now is going to be with us for a while. Um, even as the pandemic hopefully uh, recedes into the rearview mirror and at the risk of jinxing all of us, it appears to be doing that. The situation we've created is going to be with us for at least several months, if not a couple of years. Uh, it's been building for a while. COVID was the tipping point. But we've had conversations with our own Department of Health as recently as last week around a statewide approach to ambulance triage, crisis standards of care in the emergency room that allows people to move a little bit beyond their typical scope of license. Uh, we, we can't do that without the Department of Health's approval, and we're in conversation. We, we're not there yet, Tom, but as you pointed out so eloquently in your piece yesterday, it's two phenomenon at the same time. One, it's a staffing shortage, the likes of which we've never seen. And just to be clear, while it's acute, it's most acute in the nursing space, it's across the board. It is transporters, it is techs, it is pharmacists, it is across the board. We feel it most acutely with nursing at the bedside. We hope we don't need to go there, but again, I've been doing this for 33 years and I've never had to do what you suggest, which is sort of battlefield triage, but I would say that is not out of the realm of possibility. Tim, I wonder if you might uh, describe the labor shortage uh, for any of our listeners who don't have a frontline sense of what you're all struggling with. It feels to me more complicated than I just can't find enough nurses, or is it really? Let me give you just a couple of uh, numbers for your listeners. At Lifespan, uh, we have approximately 17,000 uh, employees. That's a pretty stable number. And year over year, as long as I've been CEO and I'm coming into my 10th year as CEO, our vacancy rate has been remarkably stable. We run roughly 700, 720 vacancies year over year on a base denominator of 17,000. That number is now 2,200. So we've tripled the number of vacancies in the last 12 months, tripled. We now have 2,200 jobs that we can't find people to fill, number one. Number two, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> it's complicated, as you would say, your chain link fence analogy. But we've talked about this for years, about the stresses in the healthcare professional get tougher every year. They don't get easier. Uh, the competition for talent gets tougher. But I think one of the things that has really occurred to me, um, and I need to be careful with choosing my words so that I don't inadvertently uh, insult people, but for the last two years, many people as part of the pandemic have been able to work at home. And a lot of people have enjoyed working at home. So although the pandemic was stressful in many other areas of their lives, They've actually enjoyed working at home and have found it fairly, not peaceful, but less stressful than showing up in the office. That has not been true for the healthcare workers. They've come in every single day, and the work environment has become incredibly more stressful. I round in the units, and just the sheer effort to doff and don protective gear, the sheer anxiety of walking into a hospital every day knowing you're putting yourself in harm's way, 
For the last 20 months, while others have gotten a bit of a respite, our caregivers have not. If anything, the stress in their lives has doubled and tripled. So not surprisingly, the burnout rate has gone through the roof. I've never seen anything like it in 33 years. Dedicated, caring professionals who for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years have put their heart and soul into this profession are simply throwing in the towel. They've had enough and they feel badly about it. They're not walking out of the hospital, you know, high-fiving each other. They're walking out of the hospital kind of with their, their head hung low and their shoulders drooping, feeling bad that they just can't do it anymore. We're losing whole shifts at a time. I'll tell you one quick anecdote. We had a particularly stressful couple months and an entire third shift in one of our hospitals on one of our floors resigned en masse. They had just had enough. And these are people who work together closely, who have great esprit de corps. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is that when one or two folks start to think about leaving, they tend to take the team with them. So we're having huge holes created in in staffing schedules on 12 hours notice. It's a phenomenon we've never seen before. It is a phenomenon that I think we're all doing exactly the same thing to fill the gaps in the short terms where paying exorbitant rates for agency staffing because we have to, we have no choice. But Tom, I think it's going to be a generational thing. You know, the world is upside down right now. We've got people becoming billionaires trading cryptocurrency, and we've got people becoming billionaires doing hedge funds. Society, even just from a monetary standpoint, has really, in my opinion, undervalued healthcare, and that'll lead us into the cost discussion that you and I have had many times before. But although pay is not the driver uh, for these professionals, you know, they have a pride, a professional purpose. They take pride in their work. Society is sending healthcare a signal that it is not quite the valued profession it may have been 10 or 20 years. I couldn't disagree more, but that's the signal our workers are getting. I completely understand your perspective. To your point, as you know, you've met my wife, Sandy. She has a kind of a complicated medical condition herself. And so I've always worried not really so much about myself, but what I might be bringing back to her as I travel around. I'm not in hospitals every day, but the anxiety that I feel, which is a pittance by comparison, but that anxiety that I feel about what I might bring back to my wife is right in the front windshield of your folks, literally every time they walk through the door. And that has to be exhausting. It absolutely is. We could spend hours on another important topic you and I've discussed, which is the mental health burden, not only in society, but healthcare in particular, that's going to play out over the next several years. These are seasoned professionals. You know, they've been through station nightclub fire and and mass casualties. So they're used to kind of a surge of adrenaline and a surge of we've got this and this is what I trained for. And and you kind of run on adrenaline for a month or two. And then you look back and say, job well done. We're now in our 21st month of this. And although we've had ebbs and flows, it's been a constant. And what we're hearing from some of our people that are leaving, and again, it's not unique to Rhode Island, a lifespan. It is ubiquitous. And I would say just parenthetically, when I talk to my peers around the country, Rhode Island, we're kind of in the middle of the bell-shaped curve. Uh, We're not the worst and we're not the best. We're, We're kind of right in the middle. What we're hearing from our employees is, my family has asked me to not go to work anymore or 
to go to work in a less risky, less stressful environment. They're seeing the stress. I'm not as good a wife anymore. I'm not as good mother anymore. I'm not as good husband anymore. I'm not a good father anymore. And like the rest of society that has kind of taken a, a reboot on on how they look at their life-work balance, um, it's hyper-acute in healthcare. And it's completely understandable, Tom. People are putting their families first. They've always put their patients first, and now their families are saying, enough, enough. You've given it 20 months. It's time to come home. And boy, it's hard to argue with that, Tom. Tim, what can those of us who are not healthcare professionals do to help solve this problem? Yeah, Tom, thanks. It'll sound a bit simplistic, but I tell my friends and family, take care of yourself, stay healthy, try to keep out of the hospital, number one. And number two, if you do need to go to a hospital, be kind to those who are showing up. I mean, part of the problem we're having, Tom, is our patients are angry and our patients are frustrated and they're taking it out on our staff. And I think if people want to know what they can do to help, it's, you know, do your preventive health, get checked out, try to not get sick. And if you do get sick, just be nice to those people who are showing up. I think that's great advice, Tim. One of the things that I'm struck by is just the polarity of the country right now and the high anxiety that we feel in almost everything that we do. And I, I'm, I'm sure that that's finding its way into the healthcare setting where really there's no place for that when folks are faced with the critical nature of what we're doing. Let's pivot, Tim, from kind of a description of the problem to some possible solutions. And to do that, let me ask you a two-part question. First of all, in the long term, besides training more professionals, what can we do around innovative care models or other strategies to better meet future demand surges? And do you think these solutions are market-specific, or do we need a national conversation? Let me take the second part first, Tom. I've given this a lot of thought, a lot of thought. I live in a pretty competitive market here in New England. And, and when we think about what we're doing at Lifespan, what my pal Marna Borgstrom is doing at Yale and my friends up in Boston are doing, we're all sort of doing the same thing, but none of us are making much progress. Short answer, I think this is going to require a national solution. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of national regulation. However, However, the market competition for talent, you know, we're all trying to survive is making the situation worse. And I, I think we'll talk about that in a little bit. I do think it's going to require at least a national conversation and a national solution. Now, I don't know what that solution looks like, but clearly the market-specific healthcare system-specific strategies and solutions aren't working. And I don't see them working either in the short term or the long term, and quite frankly, I think they're going to make the situation worse in the short term. So I think it's going to require a national conversation. Getting back to your, your first question, we need to train more professionals. We need to make the profession more attractive. We need new innovative models of care where you know people can practice at the top of their license. Right now, it's a nursing tech shortage. But as you and I have talked about, there's a physician shortage looming on the horizon that uh, is going to make this pale in comparison. Right now, in terms of doctors, we're actually okay. It's not as bad as the nursing and the tech shortage. There's no question we need more training programs. We need loan forgiveness programs. I go back to what I said about the economics of people enter the profession with a pride of professional purpose, but they want to be paid fairly. And right now, the scales seem to be tipping towards non-healthcare industries. And man, I got to tell you, you know, three, five years from now, you want to make sure that when you do get sick, 
there's a nurse there to take care of you. There's a tech there to take care of you. And I'm concerned about that. You're familiar with our ongoing research and the study that we're just wrapping up right now, which poses the question uh, as to whether healthcare is most appropriately viewed as what economists would call a private good or what those economists would call a common good. Um, private goods are things like automobiles or wristwatches. We tend to let the market set the price for those sorts of things because we're not terribly worried as a society if those folks without the means to have a fancy car or a fancy watch don't have that. Um, and, and we tend to let the market uh, control those kind of private goods. A common good is something more like uh, clean water. And when it comes to things like clean water, and I would suggest perhaps healthcare, as a society, we are very troubled by those folks without means not having access. We're, as a country, we are appropriately very concerned today about health disparities and about health care disparities. One of the things that bothers me about the way that we have financed health care and paid for it is that markets, by their nature, Tim, create disparities. They don't solve for them. Those with more means bid the price up, and those with less means struggle to compete for the watches or the automobiles. And we don't worry about that for private goods. But for the common goods, what we tend to do as a country is we tend to use regulated public utilities so that the prices are reasonable but controlled and the access is guaranteed. We don't want anyone owning all of the water during a drought. And I take that macro model and I step that down onto the labor shortage and I think the same problems are here. Wide disparities in the prices that are paid to providers by different classes of payer will leave some of you, those of you with higher shares of government paying patients, at a competitive disadvantage when you're all competing for this scarce labor. I see the way we pay for things as an osmotic gradient, where the scarce resource being labor is moving from uh, market to market or from provider to provider following uh, those dollars. So I think the way we've been paying for things and our failure to recognize healthcare as a common good is actually exacerbating the labor shortage. Am, am I wrong to think so? You're 100% spot on. And I was hoping you were going to go in this direction. So, you know, you've known me for a long time, uh, Tom. Uh, f full disclosure for your listeners, I, I consider myself a moderate capitalist, uh, politically a, a moderate conservative. But I have increasingly leaned towards your way of thinking that we need to rethink healthcare in this country as a, as a common good for the reasons you stated. There's no question that depending on you know where you live and which healthcare system serves you, the market forces will put one market at an advantage and another market at a disadvantage, and that's really uh, screaming through in the labor market. As you know, New England is a very tightly compacted market. We've got some great brand names of medicine in the market, but we have very different payer mixes, and if you have a different payer mix, you can pay different wages. So as close as, you know, 20 miles away, um, a nurse will leave my institution to work at another institution because they can afford to pay that nurse 40, 50, 60 percent more than I can simply because of my paramix. 
that's not helping the situation. That's making the situation worse. I think the pandemic has exposed the inadequacies and the vulnerabilities in a market-based approach, a competition-based approach in healthcare. It's going to require a pretty big mind shift in this country, as you've articulated. But I think, hopefully, those of us in, in healthcare are coming to that frame of mind. And I guess I'll close by saying this. You know, for most of my career and up until the last year or two, um, although, you know, leaders in healthcare are collaborative and a professional, it's a pretty competitive business, right? We compete pretty fiercely for market share, for talent, uh, and it can get pretty ugly in some markets, as you've seen. I would say in the last 20 months, um, at least in our market, we've witnessed, at least philosophically, uh, a spirit of collaboration and cooperation and kind of laying down the swords of competition because we realized we needed to do that in order to take care of the patients during the pandemic. My hope is that feeling will last, that feeling will create a willingness to consider new national models that as recently as five years ago would have been an anathema to, to most healthcare system leaders. So long-winded way of saying, if, if there's a silver lining to the pandemic, and I think there are a couple, uh, if there's a silver lining to the pandemic, I'm hoping it will be a continued willingness of the healthcare leaders in this country to work together towards national solutions, because right now the market competition is just not working. I completely agree with you. And as you know, I've been doing what I'm doing for about 27 years. The The realization of, of healthcare as a common good is a very recent kind of um, mind shift in my own thinking. But I've just come to believe that market-based competitive forces are moving us in the wrong direction, given where we stand today. I'm hopeful that some of the collaboration that came out of the pandemic will find its way into the long haul rather than just reverting back to um, pistols at dawn. Couldn't agree more. And the segments of our population that are being disproportionately disadvantaged are our underserved communities. They're the ones who are being impacted the most adversely. So if anything, this market competition has only widened the disparities that, you know, healthcare uh, has been experiencing for years in terms of the inequitable care that our underserved communities uh, have been receiving. So it, it's really even harder on, on those communities. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts and particularly some of your personal elements of the way this labor shortage has impacted you. You know, Tim, I often close these recordings with a lighthearted question that is intended to elicit smiles. Today's topic feels too intense for levity, but I would like to close with a quick story that allows our listeners to get to know you a little better. About three years ago or so, I was coming out of my uh, primary care doctor's office when my phone rang uh, in the car and I learned that I had kidney cancer. Now, as a patient, when you hear the word cancer, it, it's a bit like falling into a fast-moving, uh, ice-cold river. You're, you're tumbling, you're uh, gasping for air. You, frankly, you're hoping someone will save you. The first thing that I did when I got home was I texted Tim because 
as he mentioned, he was a cancer surgeon and he's a friend. But instead of getting a text reply, my telephone rang and, and it was Tim on the other end of the phone. It turns out he had stepped out of his own board meeting to call me immediately. And he spent almost an hour on the phone with me. And in the course of talking, he assured me that it was going to be okay. And, and for the first time all day, I could take a breath. And instead of tossing me a rope, Tim actually had jumped into that water. What I was struck by is that he didn't close that conversation by saying, hey, Tom, keep me posted. He said, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And he was. This is what American medicine needs more of, compassion for frightened patients. Uh, we need to operate at the intersection of brilliant science and simple kindness. It's why the consequences of the labor shortage weigh so heavily, I think, on the health professionals who are in the trenches and on leaders like Tim who take those consequences personally. We'll have Tim back for a lighthearted conversation very soon, I promise. But for now, I wanted you to know him the way I do. Tim, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Tom, thank you. Thanks for sharing that kind story. Uh, I appreciate it. My dad, who was a doctor, is smiling down from heaven. So I appreciate you sharing that story. He should be. And thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations thought-provoking, and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then. <laughs>